From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. It's a 21st century problem that didn't start until the late 1900s, taking 40 billion tons a year of sand from beaches and rivers around the world. So why is this a problem? Isn't sand one of those endless resources? Apparently it's not. In fact, even the old metaphor for infinity, the uncountable grains of sand on the beach, doesn't hold up. It's been quantified. Mathematicians at the University of Hawaii say there are seven quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on Earth. Rising sea level and the resulting damage are two major reasons that the world should stop coastal sand mining, according to a team of geologists and coastal development researchers led by Dr. Oren Pilkey of Duke University. Beach and dune mining, they write, is disastrous for both the tourism industry and the ecosystem. In Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Mining, published in 2022 by Duke University Press, the authors explain why sand mining is at crisis levels, threatening beach, dune, and river ecosystems. Today, we'll explore why the appetite for sand is growing for construction, beach nourishment, and minerals. We'll also find out why coastal geologist Oren Pilkey stands behind one of his earliest contentions about beach nourishment. There is no beach erosion problem, he says, until there is something there to be affected by erosion. And we'll hear why he insists shoreline engineering of any kind protects the interests of a very few often at a very high cost in federal and state dollars. Dr. Pilkey is Emeritus James B. Duke Professor of Earth and Ocean Sciences at Duke University. He's written more than 45 books, and he joins me now. Dr. Oren Pilkey, welcome to Coastline. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. It's a pleasure to have you with us. In this latest book, Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Mining, you actually compare the rape of the Earth's beaches and rivers with Kentucky strip mining. And you talk about the song Paradise by John Prine. Can you explain where that comparison came from and why you thought it appropriate enough to put in the book? Well, it was the, the similarity was kind of striking. Um, in the case of the poem, the problem was that um, the mining, the evil mining company was was taking away all the all the topography. There was nothing there left to see, and 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 the the and of course that's the same thing that's happening in the in the beach mining situation where the the beaches are being sometimes removed completely, and and certainly they're they're changing a lot, and they're not what they were a long time ago or just even a short time ago. So so that was that was why that comparison with that poem I thought was was rather it was quite uh, unique and yeah. quite yeah yeah and can you just talk a little bit about this growing appetite for sand that I think so many people will be surprised to learn about especially where construction is concerned yeah there is basically we can say there is a shortage of sand uh, globally. Now, we have an awful lot of sand in the deserts of the world, 
more than we could possibly use in, uh, in many, many decades. But, but the problem is that sand is not, and I'll talk about that later, but that sand is not really very good for construction. Uh, in the United States, we, we use 970 million tons of sand, uh, and that includes some gravel, uh, uh, every every year. And one of the other uses that's quite uh, quite substantial is fracking in, in oil production. And, of course, we use it in asphalt and landfills and, and beach nourishment, of course. Beach nourishment usually uses sand that you take from right there and put it up on the beach. But and it's... That's a use and a process that coastal North Carolinians are certainly very familiar with. Can you talk about the scope of beach nourishment in terms of sand use and why, if you're you're putting sand back on a beach, why that's contributing to a shortage of sand? Well, yeah, that sand usually is taken from right offshore. That in itself does something to the ecosystem. But in the... um, the problem here in North Carolina, a typical beach nourishment project, uh, pumping up sand from deeper water, will last. Well, for, will cost about a, a million dollars per mile, although some projects have cost as much as ten million dollars per mile. And uh, the typical beach in North Carolina, which is a relatively high wave uh, coastline compared to, let's say, Florida. Uh, the typ- typical lifespan is something like three years. And so if you're go- going to keep, keep on protecting a row of beach cottages, um, you're going to be putting a million dollars out there every year, every three years, every three years, every three years, mm-hmm. and so forth. So that, And that, that becomes very, very costly over the long run. So. And that's also something that... North Carolinians, even those who don't live at the beach, have have been told is a a good investment because it keeps a public resource open for tourism. So in other words, it's an investment in tourism dollars and it keeps that public resource open for their own recreation. But well, you I, you take issue with that. Yeah, I, I guess I do. Very much so. I mean, we, we're, we're really doing this, and the real force behind the nourishment are the property owners. Um, but, but they're the ones who, who were imprudent enough to build a, build a house right next to the beach. And surely if they've, you know, by now we understand that, that storms are increasing and that uh, and if you're right next to the beach, sooner or later you're going to catch it. And and so why the question is uh, from many citizens would be something like, well, look, I wasn't dumb enough to build a house right next to the beach. Why should I pay for, for, to protect that house? That they, that we can instead use that same money to move the beach back, move the house back. Let's move houses back and, and not nourish beaches. That, that's one, one approach. And that's that you've always been an advocate as long as I've known of you and your work for a strategic retreat, which some people have argued is a really radical point of view. But is it becoming perhaps less radical with sea level rise and intensifying storms? 
Oh, it really is. I can remember 20 or 30 years ago when I was saying that I and other people were saying that, that it was really, really unthinkable. What are, what's the matter? We're, we're, we're mighty engineers. We can handle this problem. And, uh, but that's changed. That's changed a lot. I think there's a lot of understanding for why we should be uh, looking to other, uh, you know, looking to other things besides nourishment and looking for other ways, other places to put our beach cottages. So, yes, it is. It no longer is radical, but there was a time when um, I was not well liked. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the book, you use this quotation from the Pensacola News Journal that was, this was published in December 8th, 2019, and it reads, Blessed are the millionaire beach property owners, for they shall inherit the beach. And this is, it's partly making the case for why folks who live inland and are not beach pro- property owners are really not benefiting from beach nourishment. I mean, it is it is obvious that when beaches are renourished, we are protecting any infrastructure that might be there. We're protecting coastal structures, whether residential or otherwise. But can you explain why that isn't actually benefiting the tourist economy? And it, it's... And, and why regular citizens are paying probably more than once for those for those homes to yeah be that's true of course there are many places where the where the uh, where the beaches aren't nourished yet uh, and so you can choose if you wish to to go to a, a totally natural uh, beach but I admit that's becoming less and less less and less such beaches but the and and besides the uh, the problem of um, of paying for the beach sand and so forth, we have a problem of of uh, FEMA paying for a lot of the damage. We have a problem with we're we're losing money on uh, flood insurance for for beachfront houses. That's federal money that's going down the drain, and um, and there's other and then there's a lot of other things involved, such as maintenance of the roads and bridges and so forth. So so it's it's a very costly kind of thing that if we're putting it up just for for uh, for tourism and of course the main use of the beaches is, is is tourism there's no question about it fishing is part of that of course and swimming and, and whatever else you do on the beach but um, uh, it, yeah there's no question there's a lot of a lot of people who use beaches but nonetheless, the uh, it's these these smaller number of beach property owners are the problem <laughs> as far as the future of the shoreline is concerned. And as you assert in the book, the um, multiple <laughs> times being the beneficiaries of federal and state money when some of these storms come along and take out oh, beaches yeah. or take out the infrastructure. Yeah, this is. This is being studied by Dr. Robert uh, Rob Young at, at Western Carolina, and I don't have the numbers with me now, but we are spending a lot of money uh, nationally and locally on, on, on trying to preserve this beach. If we just move those buildings back, the beach will always be there. It'll be in a different position, of course. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at 
the world's voracious appetite for sand for construction and beach nourishment and why a team of scholars led by Duke University's Oren Pilkey is sounding the alarm. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Dr. Oren Pilkey is Emeritus James B. Duke Professor of Earth and Ocean Sciences at Duke University. He's written more than 45 books, and in 2022, Duke University Press published Vanishing Sands Losing Beaches to Mining. And Dr. Pilkey, just to go back, since this is the Cape Fear region, is a coastal community that we're talking with, we were talking about the costs and uh, beneficiaries of beach uh-huh. nourishment and how local folks who are not uh, private stakeholders at the beach are often told it's a public resource that we're maintaining for tourism dollars and for your own use because it is a public resource. But just because we do have so many beach towns around, I think it's worth pointing out, as you guys point out in the book, that access to those beaches is limited and it can be costly. Yes, that, that's very true. Um, we've seen again and again up and down the East Coast of the United States uh, signs uh, saying, uh, well, you, you can park here, but the place where you can walk down to the beach is another, uh, you know, another quarter mile or something like that. And, 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 and it's... Um, and there are many cases where, where the local communities have tried to limit public access to the beach. This has been a real, a real problem, even in some communities in, in uh, North Carolina. But um, basically, um, if, if, if it's going to be for the public, then there should be all kinds of parking, lots of parking. And um, so, so, you, so you can park near... Where the where the entrance to the beach is, that's what that's critical, of course. Yes. So help us understand what beach nourishment actually does to the ecosystem. Most people just think of beaches as these stretches of lifeless sandy expanses, but yeah. but what are these ecosystems? Well, beach beach nourishment in general uh, is, is pumping up sand from uh, five to ten meters water depth. Uh, offshore, sometimes as far away as a half mile, but usually much closer than that, and pipes at the shore. And if you've been near a beach nourishment project, you'll you'll notice that there are all kinds of seagulls and other animals and birds and so forth that are feeding on this sand because it's pumping up a lot of a lot of marine critters that come in with the sand, and 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 the seagulls uh, very much welcome that, of course. So you're 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 damaging an ecosystem offshore, and 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 the, those critters that were already on the beach, they're they're buried in sand. So, so you're damaging the ecosystem offshore and on the beach. 
And takes so it takes a while for it to recover. I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So when you put the beach, I mean the sand on the beach, and you're putting this extra layer of sand on top of what's been there, are, are you killing creatures in oh, the yeah. sand on the beach? Yes, very much so. Um, some critters can survive. Probably best to say that most critters don't survive. Uh, a, a real nourished beast got a, a foot or two of sand on top of it. Um, so, and uh, sometimes the critters aren't very common anyhow because in the process of, ro- of, of, of erosion, a lot of that sand is taken away with critters naturally. And so the, sometimes the, there's a paucity of, of critters, shall we say. But but nonetheless, whatever's left there is is killed basically and there have been some studies showing that they that for with time it will they they will recover but it generally takes three or four years before they're substantially recovered and, and you can you can also tell a, a nourished beach one that's been recently nourished um, because uh, there aren't very there aren't very many birds the the birds have eaten what what comes up with the dredge right away but after that, that's all that's all gone, and uh, and then so it becomes kind of dead sand, as far as the critters are concerned. You said it takes about four years for the beach ecosystem to recover, and earlier you said a nourished beach uh, survives on average three to four years. So right about the time the ecosystem is recovering, then you'd need to nourish the beach again. That's right. That's right. That's right. If you keep up precisely the beach, keeping it in the same position it was, and have the same beach that's always been there, yes, that's exactly right. In fact, when I say three or four years recovery, some critters that fly or crawl uh, on the surface can will recover quicker than those that basically burrow in the sand. You know, so it all depends. It probably takes much more than three years for a complete, complete ecosystem to come back. And so it really doesn't have time to do that with the beach disappearing. So We're talking with Dr. Oren Pilkey, coastal geologist and co-author of Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Mining. In this book, Dr. Pilkey, you claim that dredging for nourishment actually contributes to global climate change? Uh, <laughs> because of the the ocean floor, which is seventy percent of the Earth's surface, stores more carbon than all the soil on the land. That was yeah, uh, sort of oh no, no storing more carbon, but you you are um, ultimately through the killing of critters, you are ultimately contributing more carbon to the system. I wouldn't call it a major source, but it is a source of carbon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me, um, and I think that's an important factor. Um, also, it, it's a um, uh, it's a sort it um, beach nourishment adds to salinization. That is the um, when you take away the sand, take away the dunes, the salt water will penetrate, uh, in, especially with storms, will penetrate further inland, and that's causing. That's what you call salinization, 
and that kills all the nearby trees and other bushes. You, we see that in North Carolina a lot. We have a quarter mile or so band of dead trees almost everywhere on the mainland and uh, mainland shoreline. Yes, which is due to salinization. So that's a common mm-hmm. sight in southeastern yes. North Carolina. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And you, you say that sand is as important to our existence as honeybees are. So so going beyond the beach, this was sort of eye-opening for me. Talk about how it's find, found in our computer chips, building construction, and I never imagined I'd want to know what sand actually is. But <laughs> you go into great detail about what a grain of sand is. So, so what is it? Well, basically from a a geologic standpoint, the, the principal uh, grain is uh, made up of quartz, SiO2, a very common mineral in the world everywhere. And it, it is, these are grains of, uh, these are crystals of quartz that came from, in, in the case of North Carolina, they mostly originated probably in the mountains, in the Appalachians. And then, and as the, as the Appalachians weathered, the, the, the grains come out of the rock and eventually get into the river, and then uh, they slowly move down the rivers to the to the coast. And that that motion to the coast may take thousands and even millions of years. It's a it's a slow process. But um, we we um, in our case in North Carolina, the rivers come in. Most of the rivers come into the bays, like Pamlico Sound, Albemarle Sound, and so forth. Um, but in California, the rivers come right to the sea, so the the um, the sand that's nourishing the beaches, and the, and the beaches need that sand, of course. Uh, the sand that's nourishing the beaches in California comes right to the beach, but here in in in, in on, the, on most of the East Coast and certainly most of North Carolina, the sand ends up in the edge of of the of a bay. It doesn't get immediately to the beach. And but the what, way it, yeah, go ahead. The, well, I was gonna say the way it works here much slower as sea level rises and as the shoreline moves inland, um, it picks up that sand that was deposited uh, in in the bay. So, so it's a gradual process here on, on the east coast. So it's um, much more gradual than for that sand which has come down from rivers and then moved into bays to get yeah. to the ocean. And it's more yeah. direct on the west coast of the United yes, States. That's, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Why does sand vary in color from black to white to yellow to pink yeah. to red? <laughs> yeah, sometimes you see in North Carolina, you see this a lot, patches of black sand. And uh, that's what happens when the wind is blowing away a lot of the lighter quartz grain and left behind other minerals that are different colors. And uh, for uh, someone who hasn't seen this before, it is very often mistaken for oil spill. But the black sand is not is likely not an oil spill in North Carolina. It is made up of the mineral magnetite and ilmenite, uh, iron titanium and iron oxide, and... Uh, very heavy magnetic. You can pick them up with a magnet, and in some places it's mined to, for iron ore, where there's real thick deposits of it. So, but then there also are 
uh, in some cases, for example, I saw recently on on uh, Bogue Bank, uh, Emerald Isle, I saw some purple sand, and that purple sand was a concentration not of magnetite, but it was a concentration of garnet. And and elsewhere, I've seen a, a green sand, and when a, a green sand is usually a concentration of the mineral epidote. But it makes for very colorful beaches, of course. Um, very yeah. pretty. Yeah. And so there's sand mining going on all over the world. And you talk about in the book, in Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Minings, to mining, uh, why that goes on. Construction, of course, is the number one reason behind it. In the United States... Is coastal sand mining illegal now? Coastal sand mining, is, 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 as far as we can determine, is illegal virtually everywhere. But, um, but in, in the United States, it's pretty well enforced, although we have mining of various kinds. Sometimes it's just a wheelbarrow or a pickup truck load or something. But, um, but the... Um, in other countries, Morocco, um, South Africa, uh, Colombia, South America, Argentina, um, the, the, the mining goes on with backhoes and dump trucks. And in, in, um, in, in Morocco, where they have 100-foot-high uh, coastal dunes, they're cutting big notches in those dunes, and sometimes... Uh, moving away in a single day as many as 100 dump trucks of sand moving off to some construction site where they're making concrete out of it. So, um, <clears throat> so it varies in volume and varies. And the United States is probably about as, does about little, as little sand mining as anywhere in the world. We find also well, that locals recognize this is that because there's so much sand mining going on and because it's always illegal, that means that has to mean, and it really is true, there's a lot of corruption, governmental corruption based on sand mining. That is, you, you pay off so-and-so to, to close his eyes and, and not see the trucks go by and, and so forth. So it's a, it is a major source of corruption in, in the rest of the world. And that's one of the major impacts of, uh, of beach mining, remembering that it is always Ill illegal. Yeah, and you go into great detail in the book about some of the violence around the world at, uh, that goes on and talk about actual mafias of sorts around the world that have sprung up, sand mafias, yeah, to continue they, the illegal sand mining. I think the term sand mafia first came up in India, where the sand mafia is most powerful and most violent. Very disturbing to read about it. Um, they have, we have at one point a list of people who have been killed um, from, a, from a given stretch of the shoreline there. People who were, they include environmentalists, uh, police and um, and others who who are trying to make the law be be obeyed and uh, and they're they're successfully stopping the, that effort. It's also going on in Kenya, in Mexico, Indonesia, Vietnam a little bit. 
South Africa a lot, Morocco a, a huge amount. So, and it's a major problem. It's very it's a lot of violence associated with sand mining. Yeah, that that became clear, and also some of the the negative ecological impacts and the impacts on. Uh, local citizens, fishing villages. But I want to ask you about deserts, because as I was reading this book and reading about how there is this alarming, well, this growing need for sand for construction, and at the same time, this alarming shortage of sand, deserts are huge expanses of sand. So what's wrong with moving to desert sand for construction or even beach nourishment. And that's a very good observation on your part. The, um, in, in Dubai, uh, where they have the world, world highest building and a lot of other construction, they, and they stand in the desert. They're, they're, they would have to drive away 100 yards to get a lot of sand. But they don't get sand. They get it from, from elsewhere. Um, and uh, the problem is, they think, it is assumed that um, desert sand is, is spherical, is the shape of a, of a sphere. Um, and that's because as, as sand moves about, it bumps into each, they, they bump into each other, and there's no cushioning effect of water like there would be on a beach. And so, therefore, the, the, the beach, a lot of shaping of the sand occurs. But on the beach, the sand is irregular in shape. And, and this is true in many cases. I'm, I, I'm not sure. It's, it's assumed to be always true that the desert sand is spherical, but it, it hasn't been proved. And we need to do some prospecting, so to speak, to find less spherical sand in deserts. But at any rate, um, and the reason that angularity makes a difference is because with uh, irregular shaped grains, they kind of nestle into each other um, more so than a perfect sphere or two spheres. And, and that does, they, and it has been shown that concrete is stronger with, with angular grains, and mainly from beaches, um, and and. and and uh, this spherical sand, desert sand, makes weak concrete. There's a famous case of a building built in, in Jamaica uh, many years ago, actually using uh, saltwater sand right, right, out, right from the beach in making concrete. And it, it really, it was so salty that it made it very, uh, it, it disintegrated, the building was disintegrating virtually. And that's probably what happened to that Champlain uh, condo in Florida, near not far from uh, Miami Beach, mm-hmm. that, that collapsed. Mm-hmm. And uh, now salt water doesn't impact on concrete, but it impacts on the, the steel enforcing rods. Right. And, and I think the conclusion was that some of the water, the, 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 this condo was so close to the ocean that it, it was actually washed up, washed into by by high water and normal high tides. So, yeah. So now, in one case, in in uh, in Dubai, they said they took sand from North Carolina. 
They took sand from North Carolina to that's Dubai what, to use in construction. Yes, that's part of it, yeah. And that, <laughs> I have not been able to find out where they got that sand, <laughs> but they said it was from North Carolina. <laughs> You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. We'll be back in a moment with Dr. Oren Pilkey, author of Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Mining, published in 2022 by Duke University Press. Stay with us. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. Beach and dune mining is a serious threat to the tourism industry and the ecosystem, according to the authors of Vanishing Sands Losing Beaches to Mining. Published in 2022 by Duke University Press, Dr. Oren Pilkey is Emeritus James B. Duke Professor of Earth and Ocean Sciences at Duke University, and he's with us today. And Dr. Pilkey, just before we went to break, we were talking about desert sand and why those spherical grains don't work in construction, but, and you used a couple of illustrations, and there's this funny illustration in the book about Dubai using desert sand for its sand traps on a golf course, and the golf balls were sinking way down into the sand. So, um, as you said, they imported sand from North Carolina. But is there some question about whether desert sand really is geologically, uniformly spherical? Uh, I think that's a very good question. In my, in my opinion, I, and there's no question that some desert sand is very spherical. I, I've seen that myself. But the And in fact, that golf ball falling into a, a sand trap and disappearing <laughs> is an example of the proof of, of sphericity. But um, I, I think we don't know. It, it, as a geologist, I'm I find it hard to believe that every sand, every desert has had the same history and the same length of time of the wind blowing the sand and all that stuff. And I, I'm, I feel certain that there are some, there will be some deserts where they can get uh, spherical grain, uh, I mean, get angular grains. Uh, it's just a matter of looking for them. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been much looking for them. And I think, I think that assumption is a is a weak one, and I think we need to do, as I said earlier, we need to do some prospecting, prospecting of grain shape, which is pretty easy to do, actually. Yeah. Now, in the unlikely um, circumstance that it does turn out to be uniformly spherical, are there processes that could be used to change the shape of the grains so they would be more usable? That that hasn't been tried, but they there is talking about crushing gravel and maybe getting coarse sand grains and crushing them. I, I don't know if anybody's doing that, but I think that is a real possibility for the future, uh, lightly crushing spherical sand grains, and that would make them, you know, irregular shape. And in fact, that's one of the things we talk about is that we do need a sand substitute if we can find, you know, find one, such as ground-up glass or, or 
um, you know, ground up pebble, whatever. Um, we need that, and and apparently there are, there is some effort to find that in some, in some areas. Since sand has become this uh, diminishing resource and important resource, and sand mining is illegal in the United States, are there any illegal sand mining operations that you guys discovered in your research? Well, one one operation was on. Um, uh, let's see. It was on uh, Surfside Beach, South Carolina, and uh, a, a hurricane was coming up the be- up up from the south. And my son, who lives in South Carolina, decided to go down to look at the waves. And that's something I definitely don't advise anybody <laughs> to do to go to a hurricane. But while he was there, he spotted some people underneath. The, the big the big pier at Surfside Beach, and it turns out they were mining sand. They were filling bags of sand, white bags of sand, and putting them in a pickup truck. And they had quite a few. They had quite a load of sand already at, the, at right under the pier, where they couldn't be seen. See that the the citizens in the area had already been ordered to evacuate. So that's why they were. So it that's was a perfect opportunity mining. to unseen, yeah. <laughs> scurry away with the sand. What What did your son do? Did he call authorities or no. just observe? <laughs> he He did take some photographs and and took took a photograph of the um, pickup truck too, but he didn't get the right angle to get the uh, license plate. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, we didn't pursue it further than that. But I think the pier owner would have been quite distressed to see this. Yeah. Um, he probably should have told him. <laughs> now, you, <laughs> you have a map in your book, Vanishing Sands, showing the spread of sand mines in South Carolina, and they seem to be covering the state, in, you know, all the way coastal to all the way inland. If a sand mine is somewhere on dry land, so nowhere near a current water system, is there the same issue or problem in terms of negatively impacting an ecosystem? No, no, that would not be that. That is that would not be a problem, really. No more of a problem than, than a, a pit would be anywhere. And and um, this these sands uh, in the state, the mines all over the place. Actually, they're small mines, and they usually are former shoreline deposits from a higher sea level. Over the last several million years, and so and so, the point made to be made is we don't have to go to the beach to get sand. We got all these small sand mines, but there's um, the reason they aren't in com- um, heavy use is that number one, they're they're more expensive mostly, because if you if you're mining beach sand uh, illegally, you don't pay anything for it. And beach sand is the easiest possible sand to, to all you need is a backhoe and a truck and you and you got a truckload of sand in half hour probably. So um so there's much more much easier to mine sand from a beach than it is to use one of these mines that are on upland and and, and you have to pay somebody for, to use that sand. And as it turns out you don't have to pay anybody as a rule. You do it. You do it under a system called midnight supply. You, you get your fill your truck <laughs> up with sand after 
2 a.m. Right, right. <laughs> Hope for the best, yeah. You know, we've we've talked about the ecological impacts of, of beach nourishment and the increasing costs because the more engineered a beach becomes or the more artificial it becomes, the more you have to nourish it. Yeah. But sometimes when beach nourishments happen, isn't there also a nourishment of the dune line, which is an important part of the the barrier system? And it, it isn't that an important part of protecting inland areas from from storms and wave events and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, very much so. We, we do uh, replace beaches, uh, uh, dunes sometimes. More often, we don't do that, but it is possible to do that. And, of course, a line of dunes is a much better protection for from, from overwash uh, during storms. So, yeah, we do do that, but... Uh, in general, I think most of the beach nourishment is. But there is another way to build up dunes, and that is uh, by beach scraping. And that is you you take a bulldozer and move sand from the lower beach to the upper beach. And that's done quite a bit. But um, that's okay if if they've got extra sand on the nearest beach. And that's how it sometimes is done. But sometimes it's done illegally and they they take sand from the public beach and put it up into the dune right next to their house to protect the house and some people have been fined uh, very heavily for doing that so uh, so in in general uh beach scraping is probably not not the the answer that we need so <clears throat> you cite north topsail beach which of course is in the what we consider the Cape Fear region, as having one of the worst nourished beaches <laughs> in an episode in terms of using gravelly or rocky or muddy, shelly sand not compatible with the original beach sand quality. Why does that matter from an ecological? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. The, the, um, it's happened on, on Emerald Isle and, and many nourished beaches where they have, first of all, before you nourish, before you, you dig up sand on the offshore, you have to do some coring to see, make sure that it's sand, because sometimes it's gravel. And in North Topsail, they, uh, they uh, brought up, uh, uh, they started nourishing with something that was just nothing but gravel. And of course, that's, no, that's no, of no use um, as, a, as a tourist beach. Nobody's using that particular beach for tourism. Parts, parts of North Topsail, North Topsail still have uh, sand beaches, but not that one. It was a spectacular failure. So you're saying that that particular beach is now sort of off the grid in terms of being usable as a tourist beach? Yes, that's right. It, now, I, I haven't seen it uh, for several years, but um, I assume it's still that. There's just no way that you could you could walk across the beach. Uh, very rough, and, and it was a Big mistake. Uh, I can't remember whose fault it was, but at any rate, they, the problem is that they had not done the the pre nourishment sampling, and so they were surprised. They did. They just assumed it was sand, but it wasn't sand. So it was a disaster. In terms of looking to the future, you suggest in in your book, Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Mining, that frying pan shoals 
which is this large uh, volume of sand kind of extending seaward from the Cape Fear region, just off the coast of Bald Head Island, at the southeast corner of Bald Head. People are thinking that could be a potential sand source for beach nourishment. What do you think about that? I'm yeah, I'm going to assume you oppose the idea. <laughs> Tell me uh, why. No, actually, um, I I think if you really studied it carefully, I, it would really have to be studied because it will it will change wave patterns. Mm-hmm. But if you if you're far enough offshore on those shoals, I think it's a possibility. And there's a lot of sand there, and uh, and but it would be expensive because you. I don't think you can have a pipe going all the way out to the, well, several miles offshore. So, uh, but, you know, I, I think it would, ha- I, I think we should look at it. I think it, it, it would change wave patterns and it might cause erosion somewhere that isn't eroding now or something like that. But I think that can be studied. And, uh, but right now I wouldn't touch it. <laughs> It'd be. I'd be pretty worried about what would happen to adjacent shorelines. <clears throat> and looking to the future, you talked a little bit about finding some other material, some some material other than sand yeah. that we can use in construction. Are there other materials in development right now? I, they, they say they, I, I, I'm not aware of the details, but there are a couple companies that are doing nourishment and so forth, that are doing some studies in in, um, uh, in in this. And there is a beach in California, I can't remember, but where they have ground up glass, and 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 they now now the beach is is a it, it, and they ground it up fine enough so you can walk on it. It's not going to cut your feet, they say. And I'd always be a little skeptical, but but uh, it's a beautiful multicolored beach, um, but a small one made up, made from from glass. Now maybe that'll maybe they'll pursue that uh, with time. And, and and you know we certainly have a lot of glass that that we we don't use that we throw away. So. And one of the solutions that you propose in the book is encouraging local governments just to acquire property along shorelines and rivers to create green belts. What's a green belt, and and how would that work? Who would that serve? Uh, okay, I don't understand the 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 pro, um, that that don't, that comes down to the fact that mining rivers uh, that's a common source of sand. And usually the river sand is not spherical. You know, usually it's good sand. But that takes away sand from the beach. Uh, that's the important problem with that. That that sand will make it to the beach eventually. In, in California, it'll make it in a few decades. And, and here it'll be a few hundred years or maybe more or maybe less. But that, that, is, that too is a loss to the, to the system. Uh, to the to the beach system that we should that that we must consider <clears throat> the the uh, example of of how important that is is a was a mine that was a, was a dam in in Washington State on the Olympic Peninsula that was taken away, taken out I can't remember why but uh, and boy all of a sudden there's this massive rush of water when they took out the dam blew it up. Uh, massive rush of water, and and there was a big, big, huge bulge of shoreline go, going out where that sand went, 
And they had done that in part because the Indians who lived there had a, had a clam uh, and they had they would have been making money with clams and the beach was disappearing because it didn't get enough sand because of the dam. And so the clams were disappearing and the industry, so-called industry, was uh, failing. So, And they made a beautiful, big, big beach by taking away that dam. And the last thing I heard, the clams had come back. Oh. And, and the Native Americans were, were once again uh, hunting for them. So. Wow. You also point out, unless we do find other sources for construction material, we're, we're looking at millions of climate change refugees in the coming years, leaving areas that that will grow too hot for human survival. And you cite sub-Saharan Africa as an example of that and other areas oh. around the world that will become uninhabitable from sea level rise. Yes, yes, that sea level rise. Oh boy, it, it's going to cause so much, so so many problems, especially in Africa and South America. Um, and there is there is so much more to explore, but that's this yeah. edition of Coastline. <laughs> Dr. Oren Pilkey, thank you so much for being with us today. Boy, it was my pleasure for sure. Thank you. The book is Vanishing Sands, Losing Beaches to Mining. We'll have that link and other resources in our show notes. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook at WHQR's Coastline hosted by or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. Find the episode along with resources at whqr.org. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn.